Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. You open up your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 62. We have just three more studies here as we finish up the book of Isaiah. And as I said a couple of weeks ago, we've entered that portion of the book of Isaiah that looks well into the future, future even to our time tonight. And it really gets to a place that, by God's grace, we who love the Lord, have believed on his name, received Christ, we who are saved, uh, will not experience this time that's being described. But it nonetheless is the reality of those who don't know the Lord, should the Lord decide to take his church home tonight. Right now, that would leave billions of people on this planet. Billions. And so tonight, perhaps this is one of those messages for us that needs to stimulate us to remind ourselves of the importance of teaching the word and faithfully preaching the gospel of salvation that leads people into that right relationship with the Lord Jesus. We're going to be focusing on Israel tonight. And before we dig into the text... We have two chapters to cover, and because they're both the same, really the same, almost exact piece of of prophetic window, we're going to try and get through them all, and I believe we can do that. But in it is something that right now our, our country is just struggling with. And it seems like every corner we turn... There is a racial component, racism, that we bump into. This week we've bumped into racism against those who are of Asian descent, Pacific Islanders. We've been fighting the battle for those of us who tonight are various nationalities and colors of skin for a long time. It's existed actually since the beginning of time goes all the way back, really, to the Tower of Babel. And so I want to take just a moment and just pray. Our, our country is in, in dire straits, I think. And I believe we are getting near the time when I don't know how the Lord's going to continue to just allow this to go on forever. Why he would allow the things that are going on right now to continue, I don't really know. But I know his grace is sufficient. And I know that he is the answer to what ails us. And so would you join me? We'll pray. And we'll pick up in verse 1 of Isaiah 62. Father, we come. And Lord, for those that are feeling unsafe and uncertain and unsecure right now. And Lord, tonight we, we lift up those of our brothers and sisters who are of Asian descent. But we could just as well... Pray for those that are African-American brothers and sisters or our Hispanic brothers and sisters. Lord, our country is sick. It's got a disease. 
And that disease is only going to be cured by your grace. And we pray for you to pour out your grace upon this nation for people to fall on their knees and repent of their sin. The sin of wickedness of mind that would cause someone to diminish someone else's character simply because of the color of their skin. And Lord, we know that you've created every last one of us equal in your sight. No distinction. And so, Lord, we pray that in this place, in your house, in God's house, we would be as you have asked us to be, one. Lord, that we would see each other with love and value and concern. That you would use this time tonight. Lord, speak to us as your people of what lies ahead. Lord, there's still time. But it appears that that day is drawing near. And so, Lord, prepare us for what lies ahead, we pray, as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. For Zion's sake, another name for Israel, Isaiah continues. And he speaks, he will not hold his peace. I will not hold my peace. The I there is the Lord. For the sake of the Jewish people, Israel, for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness, her salvation as a lamp that burns. And I want you to notice the distinction between the two groups of people here. And God's not making that for a distinction because of race. He's making that distinction because right now we live in the times of the Gentiles. The Gentiles have received the good news of the gospel. The gospel has been spread. It's made its way around a majority of the world. That time that we call the age of grace is actually upon us now. And there is a time when God has predominantly been dealing with the Gentile nations of the world. But there is coming a time when he is going to predominantly deal with the Jewish people once again, his chosen people. Chosen not because of anything they have done, but because of a promise that God made to them. Church, God keeps his promises. Every last one of them. He'll not be thwarted. He'll not be stopped. Notice the focus, the second half of verse 1, until her righteousness goes forth as brightness, and her salvation as a lamp that burns. The Gentiles shall see your righteousness, and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will name. And so it's very clear here that this is talking about a time when the Jewish people Come to faith in Christ Jesus. That is the only way that anyone's righteousness shines as the sun. Other than that, all of our righteousness, Paul said, is as of filthy rags. We, we, we have no righteousness apart from the righteousness of Christ. So this is very clearly talking about a time that is still yet future. When there's individual salvation, it's come to a vast majority of the people of Israel. And God will rename them at that time. He's been doing that for millennia, right? Jacob gets renamed. What's he called? Israel. 
He goes from heel catcher to governed by God. And that's really the picture here. There's going to be another name change. And so as Isaiah opens up and as he looks into the future, as he sees these things, tonight we have some absolutely amazing prophetic windows to look through because they tie into the very last books of the Bible, uh, very specifically Revelation chapters 14 and chapters 19, which for those of you that are students of the word, you know that those are times when we really do not want to be here. They're the tribulation. They're the very last days, and very specifically in chapter 19, the second coming of the Lord. Jerusalem is going to get true righteousness one day. But if you remember back in chapter 50, we saw that Israel was divorced. She she had abandoned really that place with the Lord. And I think that's one of the reasons for the heartbreak. In scriptures, in the New Testament, Jesus only that we know of, I'm sure it was more than this, but the two times that are recorded, he wept twice that we know of in scripture. One of them was over Lazarus. The second time was over his own people, the Jews, as he entered Jerusalem. God cares about the Jewish people. And so they're going to get a new name. They're going to be renamed, if it were. And so they're going to go from what they were, which is desolate, to what they shall be called uh, as we get to verse 4. Not only married, but the, the bride of Christ. Now, of course, we know because we're part of that great picture. We already have been adopted. We've been brought into the kingdom of the, of the Lord. And as that, we are already the bride of Christ. But one day, we're going to see that the Jewish people will also be brought in. Notice what it says. You'll be called by a new name, verse 2, part B, which the mouth of the Lord will name, verse 3, you shall be called the crown of glory. In the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem, in the hand of your God. In other words, this is the kingly crown. That one day, the Jewish people are actually going to be the crown that God intended them to be. He's always wanted that for them. They have not been that crown yet. They've been anything but that crown, and they have paid a horrific price for being divorced from God, for straying from the Lord, for following after the false gods that surround them. This is the history of the Jewish people. And while I want to be careful to not not make too much application in the present, When you look at Israel today, they are a group of people who largely do not serve the Lord. They have a national pride in their heritage, which is clearly of Yahweh, Lord of hosts. But it is more of a nationalism, much like what we fight in this country. It's more of, we're a special people, and God says, no, Until you come to know me personally, you're you're still out here in the field playing around with somebody else. And the Jewish people have felt that forsaken state by the Lord. 
They, they do not feel right now as God's beautiful bride. And, and in fact, because of that, when you talk to Jewish people, especially when you're in Israel or if you go to New York, uh, Connie and I have had the, the, the privilege and also the pain of visiting both of the biggest Holocaust museums. We, of course, have one here in Los Angeles. But if you travel to New York, or very specifically, if you travel to Yad Vashem in Jerusalem, and you, you go through the history of the Jewish people and what they suffered during the Second World War, it is staggering. It's mind-boggling. Six to six and a half million people died in four years during the Holocaust. And one of the reasons Jewish people, especially those that are aged, are so difficult to reach with the good news of the gospel is they will say, well, what about the Holocaust? What about my mom? What about my dad? What about my grandparents? What about my aunts, uncles, and cousins? Why would God allow that to his chosen people if we're his chosen people? Why would God allow a place like Auschwitz or Birkenau, Treblinka to exist? Most people have such a very narrow view of what happened to the Jewish people during the Second World War that they can't actually conceive of what really happened. There were 26 major concentration camps that held gas chambers, but there were over a thousand smaller camps all over Europe. And so the Jewish people are very difficult to reach with grace because of what recently happened, just 75 years ago. But notice verse 4. You shall no longer be termed forsaken. You think those would be sweet words to someone who has parents or grandparents that maybe perished in the Holocaust? Very similar to those of you that tonight bear the pain of maybe your grandparents or great-grandparents were enslaved. Maybe you're here tonight and your great-grandparents, perhaps your great-great-grandparents, were used as slave labor here in the United States to build the railroads that brought goods from one coast to the other. Maybe you're of Asian descent. You see, man has been doing these horrific things for a very long time. And God hates it. He hates racism. It is an anathema to him. He hates it when we take advantage of one another. He hasn't missed a single incident of it. And one day, he is going to extract a price from the people of this earth that will not bow to their knee to him that is going to be like nothing that the world has ever seen. So on one hand, you can look at this and go, that's horrifying. On the other hand, you can say, God is just. 
and God is fair, and he is the one about whom he himself says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. But he's going to do that in his time. So for the Jewish people, you shall no longer be termed forsaken, nor shall your land be termed desolate, but you shall be called Hetzebah. That means my delight is in her. And your land, Beulah, that means married. My delight is in her and married. That's the new name. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. This is a very specific prophetic window. This is the Lord saying, the relationship I've always wanted with you, one day is going to come to pass. And the land that was overflowing with milk and honey that I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it is going to be that. It's going to be beautiful. For as a young man, verse 5, marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall God rejoice over you. This beautiful picture of God's delightful bride. It's the same picture, by the way, that we see in Ephesians chapter 5 for Christ and the church, isn't it? That only comes one way. It comes when you're literally one of his beloved. Paul actually goes on there in Ephesians 5 of the mystery, for I speak concerning Christ and his church, how that we have this beautiful, intimate relationship with Jesus as the bride to the bridegroom. So God is going to make that the reality of the Jewish people. Hasn't happened yet. In the Second World War, they were about as forsaken as any people group could ever be. Brought near to extinction. Were it not for the Jews living in the United States and parts of Russia, they would have been completely wiped out. But God is going to bring them again to that place where he has always desired them. It's interesting, when you look at the history of the Jewish people, how many times the Lord would bring them back. And the book of Hosea expresses this in a, in a beautiful um, allegory to where it's just like, here's a story that, that speaks of this relationship. And the Lord says, yeah, but you didn't want that, so you went out after it and you came. And, he, and God himself says, look, I, I want you to go out and I want you to marry Gomer. And God's really saying about himself, it's like, look, I, I love you so much. I'm not going to destroy you, but I am going to allow you to suffer the consequences of your wandering. So God one day is going to make all of that right. And in order to guide the children of Israel, the Lord sets watchmen. Verse 6, for I have set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. And they shall never hold their peace day or night. You shall make mention of the Lord and do not keep silent. Now there are those that have tried to make this about the church. And while it's true there is a principle here that pastors should be watchmen, the principal application of this passage is for those who are watching over national Israel. 
that God had actually assigned the task of a watchman. They would stand on top of the wall, they would have a horn, and when they saw trouble coming, they would blow the horn. The problem is, the watchman fell asleep. I'd give him no rest until he establishes, till he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. When you go to Jerusalem today, it is a very interesting place. Extremely multicultural, multi-ethnic. It's the center of the three monotheistic religions that exist on the face of the earth. It's the home of, obviously, biblical Christianity, but it's also the home previous to that of Judaism, and after that, Islam. And so it's fought over. But one day, Jerusalem itself will no longer be like that. Right now it's contested. If you, if you go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, there is actually an Arab man who is a Muslim that holds the keys to the door of a Christian place of worship. And then he has to check in with the Orthodox, and then they have to check in with the Episcopalians, and it's just this insane melees of religious faiths. And that's not of the Lord. That's not what God wants. God wants the entire world. He desires that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He wants people worshiping him. But right now, Jerusalem is not a praise. It's actually a problem on all the earth. And I don't say that because it is a problem, but the world has made it a problem. If you look at the history of the UN and how many things get debated on the floor of the UN, Israel for its size occupies almost 20 times the amount of things that are brought to the floor of the UN than they should by their population. Why? Because they're always in trouble with their neighbors. There's always some part that's in conflict. The land is divided up. It's exactly as the word says. They're not a praise, they're a problem. Actually, Zechariah calls them a cup of trembling. In other words, it's a cup that's about ready to boil over at any moment of time. And the Lord has sworn by his right hand and by the arm of his strength, for surely I will no longer give your grain as food for your enemies. And the sons of the foreigner shall not drink your new wine for which you have labored. One of the great tragedies of the Second World War was not just the deaths of the Jewish people during the Holocaust, but the thievery of every last bit of their personal possessions. In, including when you travel to Auschwitz and you go to the museum that's there, the collection of the fillings that were pulled out of the mouths of dead people so that they could be melted down for the gold and then turned into gold bars. The Jewish people have been under that kind of pressure for a very, very, very long time. And God said, it's not going to be like that forever. Interesting, actually, what's going on there. But notice what it says. 
But those who have gathered shall eat it. In other words, you're going to get to keep your own stuff. When Israel sells dates, they make the finest dates in the world, by the way, in the Dead Sea and the Jordan River Valley. They're actually prized by Arab nations. But because the Arabs won't buy directly from the Jewish people, they sell the dates to China. China repackages the dates and then sells them to Arab countries. That's how crazy the politics of the Middle East are. It's nuts. Israel grows most of the citrus that is enjoyed during the winter months in Europe. If you want bananas, you would think that they would come from South America. They grow in the Hula Valley in Israel. Those who've gathered it shall eat it. And praise the Lord. And those who have brought it together shall drink it in. And notice this, in my holy courts. That is speaking very specifically of the temple. Again, there's no temple on the temple mount. There's just mosques today. But Isaiah, looking forward into the future, sees a time when Israel will actually reap what itself has sown and labored for and also will enjoy the fruits of the temple itself and go through go through the gates. When you went into the temple proper during the time of Jesus, Jesus normally entered in from either the eastern gate or the southern gate. And so when he came in, he wasn't entering directly into the temple court, which was the court where the sacrifices happened and the bronze laver where you would wash yourself and the priest would sacrifice and all those kind of things. It would come into the court of the Gentiles, which is the outside court, and the court of women. But as you got to the court of sacrifice, you actually went through a gate that was multicolored. It signified that everyone who was in the Lord could come in. And so this is a restoration of that time when the Jewish people are actually worshiping the Lord. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build a highway. Take out the stones. When the Roman Caesars would travel throughout their world, one of the things that's amazing about the the Roman culture itself, there's a place in Rome that is literally the center of the Roman world. And out from that spread this incredible network of roads, Roman roads. Probably most of you know of the Appian Way or the Via Appia. These are the world's first paved roads. And so because the emperors didn't want their chariots to chatter, they would literally send the military out and the local people out and they would pick up every stone. Every little tiny pebble so that the way could be smooth. That's the picture here. Prepare the way, except this is for the people. You see, right now the way is rough. The way is hard. The way is bumpy. But this is a picture of the way being finally smooth. Take out the stones and lift up the banner for the people's. During the time, especially of the Romans, as Isaiah looks forward, you know, he's seeing past the Greeks and past the Romans. He's seeing past all of these people groups that would come after. During this time, it's the Babylonians and then the Medes and then the Greeks and then the Romans. 
on into our time. Everyone had their banner. For indeed the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the world, say to the daughter of Zion, surely your salvation is coming. Underline that. Gives you the purpose. The purpose of all of this is the salvation of Israel. Not speaking of the church. There's no correlation that can be made here. It's speaking very specifically of Israel. And behold, his reward is with him and his work is before him. And they shall call them holy people. How is anyone holy? Save we are holy in the Lord. Amen? The only holiness that you have is the holiness of Christ. It comes to you by grace and through faith. It's declaring that Jesus Christ is Lord. And because of that, his righteousness is put into your account. You, therefore, are seen, even though you are not actually, you are seen. Your sins are expunged. You're justified. Your debt is paid. The charges against you have been nullified. You are now holy. His reward is with Amen. Amen. Holy people, redeemed of the Lord. There's an even deeper statement. In other words, the full price to buy you out of the slavery to sin is paid. The only way that can happen is the blood of the Lamb. Amen? So this is speaking very specifically of a salvation experience. And you shall be sought out, not a city forsaken. You see, right now I can tell you there's one thing that will you will not find generally when you go to Jerusalem today. There's not going to be a whole bunch of massive megachurches preaching the gospel. You will find virtually everything else. Calvary Chapel has a Bible college in Jerusalem. It actually has been moved to Tel Aviv because we couldn't get enough students in Jerusalem to actually go to it. So it got moved. Why to Tel Aviv? Because Tel Aviv is the most westernized city in all of Israel. But there's going to be a day when Jerusalem is going to be a Christian city. It's coming. This role of watchman, to some degree, that's partly my job. To be faithful to watch, to be faithful to pray. Now what about this temple that's mentioned here? Which one is that? There are actually two more temples coming, at least, probably five in total. There may be three more, but two for sure. The next one is actually going to be the temple of the Antichrist. So be careful you realize which temple this has to be, because the Antichrist is actually going to build a temple and demand himself, ultimately, after three and a half years of subduing the world with his political magic, He's going to demand to be worshipped in that temple, and he's going to be the defiling of that temple. So this temple that's being uh, talked about here may well still be that temple. But as the church is gone, a world leader called the Antichrist rises up in Ezekiel chapter 38, 39. You can read those later. This final part of this battle of Gog and Magog as this ruler rises up this first three and a half years is going to be a time of peace. Pseudo-peace. 
he's going to be looking like a pretty good guy. You know, I've had people, oh, you know, he's going to be like the devil incarnate. No, I think actually he's going to look more like he, you know, buys his suits from Gucci and he's going to drive a Lambo and have a bank full of money and he's going to be very charismatic and he's going to be a world ruler that everybody will follow. And he's going to make a peace treaty with Israel. But in the middle of the week, Daniel says, he's going to break that peace treaty. And I believe one of the results of that is going to be the destruction of all the mosques on the Temple Mount and the rebuilding of the Jewish Temple. So that he can be worshipped. So the false prophet can prophesy from there. But one day Israel is going to see their Messiah. They're going to get it. But there's some stuff coming that's not good. There's an interesting phrase here. Notice verse 7, and give him no rest until he establishes. What in the world's going on there? This is a picture of our persistence in prayer. Anybody else get a little tired of praying for people occasionally? Just an admission. There are times when I get tired of praying for specific things and specific people and, you know, things where I, you know, I, I've, there are people in my life that I have prayed for for decades And sometimes my prayer life, and probably you can identify with this, it's like, Lord, you already know what I'm going to pray, just you know what I mean. (laughs) So you get down to that, right? You don't see the results, and you're like, oh, can I just encourage you? Even those weak, lame prayers like that, God is actually still listening. He still hears the cry of your heart. And just because you're not as good at as you should be doesn't mean he's not listening. But the point here is to be persistent in prayer. That's why we are to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Can you imagine the person that started in the time of Jesus? Well, let's go back a little bit because it was actually David that wrote that verse in Psalms, or in Psalm 122, pray for the peace of Jerusalem for it will be well with you. So for 3,000 years, people have been praying for the peace of Jerusalem. You think maybe people might be looking at it and say, it's pointless. Why? Who cares? Actually, that is one of the reasons that we have aberrant theology in our world today. It's because people got tired of praying for the things that God's word actually says. And they started praying for the things that they wanted to say. Which is, well, God doesn't have a plan for Israel. The church has replaced them. Let's just, um, let's move on. That's not what's being said here. We're actually to continually intercede. And Jesus, we just looked at this in Luke 18, gave us this weird thing of this unjust judge. Uh, In Luke chapter 18, there was a certain judge who did not fear or regard man. And now a widow goes and this widow keeps just like she just keeps going. It's like, I'm going to go. And the point is this. If God will answer the prayers that are prayed by a widow and use an unjust judge, what do you think is going to happen when he is not an unjust judge and you keep praying? See, our problem is we run out of patience before God does. 
and we start planning and mapping out our second line, our second course, the direction we're going to go. If even an unjust judge will yield to persistence in prayer, the Lord absolutely is hearing what you're praying. You may not like how long he's waited. I certainly can tell you there are things in my life it's like, Lord, I don't know, even know what to pray anymore. That's where the Holy Spirit comes in because the Holy Spirit prays for you in those moments, actually intercedes for you when you don't know what to pray. But your heart is willing to pray, the Holy Spirit kicks in. Anybody ever had that? One of the, one of the things that pastors go through, I'll just share you a little, inner, a little pastoral insight. We do a lot of waking up late. It's early morning. It's just like something is going on. There's some spiritual thing at the church. And like every other human being, at 3 o'clock in the morning, you're like, oh, Lord, could I just please go back to sleep? I'm dying here. And the Lord reminds me, it's a privilege for me to be talking to you right now. I'm like, well, Lord, I'm not sure what you woke me up for, but could you tell me what that is? And sure enough, I can't even tell you how many times I've actually got up and gone and written down notes for a message or something to where the Lord just wants to speak to me and he wants me to speak to him. Be persistent in prayer. So much of our life as believers is in the form of contrast. Amen? Think about it. Flesh, spirit, light, darkness, good, evil, fresh, bitter, put off, put on. Those are contrasts, right? Well, the contrast here is keep praying even if you don't hear from the Lord. You see, your natural inclination, because that's such a contrast, is not doing anything, God. Your natural inclination is to stop. And God's contrasting that with great faith. Keep praying. Pray for Israel. Pray for you. Pray for me. Pray for us. Pray for this nation. Pray for our world. I got asked one time, well, you know, I don't know what to pray about. And I, I, I started saying things like that. Well, do you have any ants? Yes, pray for them. Uncles, yes, pray for them. Cousins, yes, pray for them. Mom, yep. Dad, uh-huh. You got kids? Yes. Your kids have a school? Yes. You see what I'm saying? There is so much for us to pray about that we don't pray about that's almost silly. Well, I don't know what to pray about. Are you taking breath in your lungs right now? Pray that God would continue to give you breath in your lungs. That your circulatory system would not be clogged with arterial plaque. And you wouldn't die of a stroke or a heart attack. There's so many things to pray for. Pray for your mental health. Pray for your emotions. In all of this, it really points to the fact that God is very tired of his people Israel being taken advantage of. The Lord, verse 8, is sworn by his right hand, by the arm of his strength. Surely I will no longer give your grain as food to your enemies. 
and the sons of foreigners will not drink your new wine for which you've labored. And again, I don't want to belabor this, but there's so much misinformation about Israel, it's almost staggering. Today in Israel, nearly 26% of the Israeli national budget is spent towards people who the very next day are likely to firebomb a car in the Gaza Strip or in the West Bank. It goes to people that patently hate them. Israel has had Arab Muslims serve in its junior ministerial services. They have had people who have been their chiefs of staff. Their Supreme Court has had Muslim people on them. Their Knesset, which is the equivalent of our Congress, also has Muslims. It's just not true. And God sees all these things where the Jewish people have been reaching out, and he's not happy about it. And so what the world keeps doing is saying, well, you just need to give away more land, which they don't have any land to give, and the land that they do have actually belongs to God. For it's mind-boggling. The Israeli Defense Forces actually have two Arab generals in them. The IDF. The most vaunted military force in the Middle East has Muslim generals in it. And so God's saying, look, I'm not going to put up with this forever. The major relief fund in Israel, the Jewish National Fund, is actually overseen by an Arab Muslim. God sees all these things. Today they're being called racist, land grabbers. From God's perspective, that's his land. He put them there. That's not what's going on. One day God's going to square all that away. Surely your salvation is coming. There's a time when God is going to Take care of all of this. Revelation chapter 19 gives us some insight here. I think we can wrap this up in a fairly short period of time. But Revelation 19 verse 11 says, And now I saw heaven opened, and behold a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. I don't think anybody in this Sanctuary needs to be told who that is. And if you do, we're going to help you in just a moment. Remember that this is written by the Apostle John. He's the only apostle that was not martyred for his faith. He was imprisoned on the island of Patmos, which is out in the Aegean Sea. It's a little tiny island that the Romans used to use for political prisoners. It contained mines, and so you would be sent out there John was 94 years old when he was imprisoned on the island of Patmos. So he'd been alive after Jesus' ascension for 60 years. This is what John sees. So imagine Isaiah, 686 BC. Here's John, almost 100 years AD. So let's just call it, for good measure, 800 years apart. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. 
His eyes were like a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns. What did he say? They would be as a crown. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. And he was clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Yuck. And his name is called the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who is this that's coming? It's Jesus. And then they, the whole world, shall call them the holy people, redeemed of the Lord, verse 12 of chapter 62. And you shall be sought out, a city not forsaken, verse 1 of chapter 63. Notice the Q&A that goes on here. Very serious Q&A, I might add. You know, sometimes we do the ask the pastor thing. We sit down, we ask questions, and then we try and answer them. Here is Isaiah the prophet doing this very thing, and you can see who's answering. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. There's only one who's righteous. There's only one who's mighty to save. There's only one who comes in the brightness of his coming. It's the same one that's mentioned in Revelation chapter 19. This is very clearly Isaiah looking forward and seeing the second coming of the Lord at the end of the tribulation. This is serious, serious Q&A. Notice the questions that are asked and then notice the answer because the answer is actually the same. So the question, who is this that's coming from Edom with a dyed garment from Basra? Answer, I that speak in righteousness mighty to save. Who is this that's coming from Edom? That would be Jordan, who is so glorious in his apparel, traveling with the greatness of his strength. Answer, I that speak in righteousness, the Lord mighty to save. Question, verse 2, why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads a winepress? What did it say in Revelation 19? Garments dipped in blood, those two things are exactly the same. Why are your garments stained? It looks like you've been in a wine vat. What in the world is going on? Here comes the answer. Look how this ties to Revelation chapter 19. Looks like your garments are covered with grape juice. Verse 3, Isaiah 63. I have trodden the winepress alone. From the peoples, no one was with me. When we say the Lord Jesus is going to fight the battle of Armageddon essentially by himself, that's because that's what the Bible says. No one would fight with him. No one is really needed, to be honest. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled on my garments. So what do you think 
this means in light of Revelation chapter 19. It's the same event. This is a picture of the Lord Jesus coming and saying, look, you cannot do this anymore to the Jewish people. I am coming to defend them. I have stained all my robes, for the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. And so as you look at this passage, and by the way, you could go to Revelation 14 as well, and for sake of time, we'll speed this up. In verse 10, it says, And the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. This is God saying, not anymore. It's done. If you were to continue in chapter 14, I do not encourage you to read this tonight before you go to bed. Unless you really enjoy rolling over in your sleep. This is a read it in the middle of the day passage. Meditate on it. Remind yourself, we have this for a reason. It's so we can get busy about the good news of the gospel being spread. But verse 14 of chapter 14, I looked and behold a white cloud and upon the cloud was one who looked unto the son of man, having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel cried out and he says, reap. And the earth was reaped. The second coming of the Lord is no joke, church. It is no joke. I've had people send me emails and go, well, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't think it's going to be that bad. You know, we've had wars before. The people that say that have not read their Bible. They're ignorant of the truth that is contained in the Old Testament and the New. Think about it. This is Isaiah writing in 686 B.C. And he looks forward to a time that the Apostle John would write the book of Revelation and give us some description. And now there have been nearly another 2,000 years. Israel's back in the land. They survived the Holocaust. It's time for the church to be looking up. It's not time for you to be on YouTube looking for conspiracy theories about whether the COVID vaccine is the mark of the beast. That is foolish idiocy. And anyone who does it is a fool. Let me just square it away. It's foolish. Because number one, no Christian is going to take the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast is taken willingly by those who want to worship the beast so that they can buy and sell. So if you're a believer, you would never do that in the first place, and it has to be willingly. So you getting some shot that protects you from a disease is not the mark of the beast, period. There is no radio RFD nanobots inside of the vaccine. Can we just square that one away as well? It's like, it's foolishness. It's absurdity. The mark of the beast is going to be something real. And you're going to take it so that you can buy and sell to stay alive. Because God's wrath is being poured out on the earth. Right now, God is not pouring out his wrath. When you continue on in Revelation 19, it says this in verse 11. 
And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it was called Faithful and True. Who do you think that is? And in righteousness he judges the earth. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowds. Hmm, that's almost exactly what Isaiah said. And he had a name written that no man knew except himself. And he was clothed with a garment dipped in blood. And his name was called the Word of God. And the armies which were with him in heaven followed him on white horses. This is where you and I come in. We're not going to be here during the wrath of God. We're coming back with Jesus when the wrath of God is poured out. Get your eschatology right and then you don't walk around in fear. If you missed this passage and you're wondering, oh, I hope I don't go through the tribulation. This massive bloodshed that Isaiah sees is the same bloodshed that John sees. It's coming in the very last days, church. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10 gives us this incredible word. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. That was the Old Testament law. Isn't that crazy? Two or three people could rise up against you and bear witness against you and it could cost you your life. Notice how this ties in. Verse 29, Hebrews chapter 10. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose it will be thought worthy of who has trampled the Son of God underfoot and counted the blood of the covenant by which he sanctified it a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace? The second coming and the wrath of God is no joke. That's why the church is supposed to be very busy about the good news of the gospel. Because of the good news of the gospel, because of salvation by grace and through faith, all men can be saved. Notice what I said. I was very careful there. I didn't say all men are saved. I said all men can be saved. Very different. You have to believe. You have to receive. You have to repent. You must do your part. The grace is there. It's free. It's a gift. But you've got to accept it. And if you don't, there is an option B. And it's not a good one. If you were alive tonight and the Lord were to take the church home, you would have seven years. Which you might need to be worried then about taking the mark of the beast and buying and selling. So if you ever see a bunch of empty churches... And Bible's sitting in their place, and no Christians on the earth, you know what happened. But you don't need to worry about it. You see, in that sense, New Testament Christians, we talk about being saved, right? Anybody ever ask you, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be saved? Well, there's actually two parts to it. It's what you're saved from, and it's what you're saved to. What I'm saved from is everything we just talked about. The wrath of God being poured out on this earth. This horrible time that's going to come upon man because of what's happened primarily to Israel. 
but really because of the effects of sin. People turning their lives over to the devil and basically worshiping a false god. The world, the flesh, the devil. You see, you are saved from that, but you're also saved to something. And that is a glorious future. Amen? We're saved to heaven. We're saved to glory. We're saved to righteousness. There's actually a lot more we're saved to than what we're saved from. We're saved to be a witness. We're saved to share the gospel. We are saved to be as he is, holy. We're not just saved from his wrath. We are saved to be like him in this world. Because the world needs us. The world needs believers to stand up and be like Jesus. Romans 1.8 makes it very clear. Actually, verse 18, excuse me. The wrath of God is going to be poured out against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who hold the truth of God in unrighteousness. There's, there's who's going to get the wrath of God right there. People who don't want the righteousness of Christ. Now, people don't like to think about it. They're just like, well, you know, I don't really like that. Seems kind of, you know, like a downer. It is a downer. It's a bummer. It's supposed to be a bummer. It's supposed to not be a joke. It's supposed to scare you to some degree. It's supposed to be something that you think about. You go, man, I don't want anybody to go through that. Why? Because you don't have to go through that. You're hearing this now. If you hear this later, if you watch this on YouTube, if you see it in a podcast, whenever you hear what I'm saying right now, you do not need to be afraid. But you do need to be saved. From the wrath of God and unto good works through salvation in Christ Jesus. And so to seal this as we close tonight, I appreciate your patience as we've gotten through two full chapters. Verse 5. But I looked and there was no one to help and I wondered. This is the prayer of Isaiah. That there was no one to uphold and therefore my own arm brought salvation for me. In my fury it sustained me. I've trodden down these people in, in anger and made them drunk in my fury and brought down their strength to the earth. He's basically saying, look, this is going to happen. But notice how Isaiah responds, verse 7. And this is what you need to take home tonight. Take all that stuff that seems hard. I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord and the praises of the Lord. According to all that the Lord has bestowed upon us, this is the prayer of Isaiah saying, in spite of what I've just seen, in spite of what I know is coming. And the great goodness towards the house of Israel. Notice it doesn't say the church there. It doesn't even intimate the church. It's just towards the house of Jacob, Israel. The twelve tribes. Which he has bestowed upon them according to his mercies. According to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. Just at the right time in the middle of all of this. Even then the Lord is going to pour out his goodness. Even then there's going to be a way of escape. 
It's just going to be infinitely harder. Right now, it is really simple to become a believer. It's going to cost you your life, by the way. But it's easy as professing, yes, Jesus, I believe. I believe you died for my sins. I believe you substitutionally placed yourself on the cross and said, I'm going to take Jeff's sin right now. Father God, pour out every bit of your wrath on me, on Jesus, right now. Do you realize that's what Jesus did on the cross? He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. He literally took every ounce of God's wrath in your place so that you don't have to worry about it later. But you need to believe that. You need to receive that. You need to obtain that. Which he has bestowed upon them according to his mercies, according to the multitudes of his loving kindnesses. For he said, surely, verse 8, they are my people, children who will not lie. And so he became their savior. It's only one way that can happen. There's never been two ways. There's always only been one way. It's by faith. Grace comes by faith. That's how salvation comes. Everyone always has. All their affliction in it, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence, verse 9, saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them and he bore them and carried them in all of the days of old. The Lord was with the Jewish people every step of the way, including through the midst of the Holocaust. As hard as that is for us to wrap our little earthly minds around. He was there during the Armenian genocide. He was there during the Atlantic slave trade in our country. God hasn't missed any of it. And he's going to make it right. He was there when Chinese citizens were brought from China to build our railroads. He was there when the British invaded China and started war so that they could have the opium that China was producing. Allowing the Chinese people to suffer countless millions of people die from opioid addiction. I didn't miss any of it. Saw what the Romans did to the Christians. God hasn't missed any of it, church. He's still good. He's still wonderful. But they rebelled and grieved the Holy Spirit. And so he turned himself against them as an enemy. And he fought against them. He remembered the days of old of Moses saying, Where is he who brought them out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit within them? Who led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the water before them to make himself an everlasting name? Who led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness that they might not stumble as a beast that goes down into the valley and the spirit of the Lord has caused them to rest. And so lead your people to make yourself a glorious name. Look down from heaven and see your habitation holy and glorious. 
your zeal, your strength, the yearning of your heart. This is Isaiah praying. It's like, Lord, we messed up, but you are good. We blew it, but you didn't. We wandered, but you saved us. We went astray, but you gathered us back. Sound, sound like anybody's relationship with the Lord? It's our history, isn't it? The yearning of your heart and your mercies towards me are the restrained. Doubtless you are our father. Though Abraham was ignorant of us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, our father, our redeemer, from everlasting is your name. Isaiah sees all this tragedy and even seeing the tragedy, he more importantly sees the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. O Lord, why have you made astray from your ways? This is rhetorical. And harden your heart from your fear. Return to your servant's sake. The tribes of your inheritance, your holy people have possessed but a little while. Our adversaries have trodden down your sanctuary and we have become like those of old over whom you never ruled. Those who were never called by your name. He's saying, look, we know who you are. Help us to believe it. Help us to receive it. Help us to get it right now. Because one day, church, this is the truth that the New Testament teaches. One day, Paul writes to the church of Philippi, every knee will bow. Every knee. It doesn't say Christian knees. It doesn't say Judeo-Christian knees. It doesn't say knees of people who go to church. It says one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Whether they live on the earth or under the earth, every knee will bow one day. The only question is, have you bowed yours now? That's the question for everybody. It was the question for the Jewish people. It's the question for us tonight. He is a gracious God, willing to receive anyone unto himself who repent and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I've been wandering. I went the wrong way. Forgive me. I'm turning back. I don't want what I've got. I want what you're offering. He is mighty to save. That person who is of a broken spirit and of a contrite heart, he will not cast you out. Church, that's the good news. The bad news is the wrath of God one day is going to come. But the good news is you don't have to go through it. That's the good news. And the good news far outweighs the bad news. So let's preach the good news. Let's tell people about Jesus so they can put to rest these things. So they don't lay awake at night wondering what's going to happen. I know what's going to happen for me. One day, with the sound of a trumpet, the dead in Christ are going to rise, and we who are alive and remain will meet him in the air forever to be with the Lord. It's either that or I'm going to take my last breath and I'm going to say, hello, Jesus. One of those two things is going to happen to me. Can't tell you which one it is, but both options are really good. So let's dwell on that and then make sure other people have the option to be where we are. Amen? Would you stand and we'll close in prayer. Again, thank you for your patience as we try and wrap up our study here.
Hard to believe we've been in Isaiah for a year and a half. Crazy, isn't it? Father, we thank you for every moment we've spent in this amazing book. And as we have a couple more studies, Lord, we just look forward to finishing strong here in this book. We thank you for the message of grace in Isaiah's prayer. Lord, Isaiah's already told us, fear not. And so, Lord, we don't walk in fear. But maybe there's someone here tonight, perhaps watching online, that is afraid. Lord, they don't know if they were to take their last breath tonight, where they would spend eternity. Your grace is a free gift, and Lord, we want to offer that to them tonight, that they would know and have that peace. And so if there's anyone, Lord, would you please share that good news with their spirit right now, that they would uh, cry out to you, confess their sin, invite you in to be Savior, admit that they need you, Lord. Ask you to forgive their sin and to write their name in your wonderful Lamb's Book of Life. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for the grace that has set us free to live lives of abandon for you. And we pray we live that way. Use us for your kingdom. Thank you for your goodness to us. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem tonight. We pray for peace in our own country. Lord, all of these things that are dividing us, God, in Jesus' name, we cry out to you as the only one who can save Lord, put down these these evils, Lord, that are plaguing us. Cause this nation to turn back to you. Lord, we admit that we've messed up. And God, we ask you to save us. Lord, speak to us and use us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.